Well, because sure, I could burn the bottom if I try to make caramel, but probably not. I'm a pro. I've never sure. tried it. I don't cook very often, but. We have watched Great British Bake Off. Yeah, I've watched almost all the seasons. So I think I could do it. Where somebody first had try. to restart like eight times. That one is rough. <laughs> no, I could do it first try. I don't even need to look up a recipe. It's just water and sugar. How hard could it be? Can't be that hard. I'll just guess. True. That's how you're supposed to cook, right? Or bake, whatever. You feel it with your heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fits Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter 14, Family Matters, and we start with Kenneth. He has fresh off his victory with the slave ship, which Sorcor pretty much headed up, and he is kind of doing, Robin Hobbs is kind of doing like the time jumpy thing where they start in something and then there's a whole page where they go back in time of what happened the days before. So basically they captured the ship, he ordered it, scrubbed out and everything like that. And they are heading to the village of Askew. And so Kenneth here says that it was uh, after a tense conference, he and Sorcor determined that Askew would be a better port for her, meaning the ship. So they are deciding not to go to Divi Town. Sorcor wanted to drop all the slaves off at Divi Town because he is... Uh, because Askew is basically nothing. It's just a little shanty village that doesn't have any prospects. Right. Kenneth had thought it fitting. Had not Askew been founded when a storm-driven slaver had taken up shelter up a channel and the cargo managed a successful uprising against the crew? He had asked Sar- uh, Sorkor in amusement. Yes, that was true, but Sorkor had still been opposed, for there was little more to Askew than sand and rocks and clams. But Kenneth sticks to his guns, even though Sorcor hates this idea because he is hellbent on this idea that they need this whole project needs to fail to teach Sorcor that it's not worth it to waste time on slavers. And so they're heading to Askew, a journey that is much closer than Divi Town, which Kenneth is grateful for. But in the meantime, he has Rafo, who is one of his other mates, I think, or one of his well-regarded sailors, taking command of the other ship, scrubbing it down, and using a skeleton crew over there with some of the able-bodied slaves and teaching them how to be sailors so they can sail it to askew as well. But a lot of the slaves, or former slaves, I should say, the freed slaves, are still dying from disease and everything like that, so Kenneth refuses to have any of the uh, the slaves over on his ship just right. to uh, prevent disease and everything like that. And he says that the smell is markedly better than it was when they first captured it because of the cleaning out. Right. And he does concede that it's probably harder for the freed slaves to learn the trade of sailing just because they are very weakened at this point. And so, of course, they're going to struggle more. But there's more of them on the ship to learn. So yeah. he doesn't feel that bad. And morale is high, he says, despite the the continued deaths and everything like that. And this is kind of a, a repeating part or a repeating thought throughout this whole thing. He doesn't quite grasp why people are grateful 
or why morale is high or why people are happy about any of this. Right. It is really interesting. There's this weird dynamic with Kenneth and everyone else where he really is viewing this completely different to everyone else and very clearly throughout it's it's we're getting shown glimpses of how he is out of the loop and it ultimately doesn't affect him part of his luck i guess he also mentions that sorcor had driven off the serpents by some ballista shot and even though slaves were still dying when they tossed the bodies over the side the freed men excuse me men and women when they tossed the bodies over the side, everyone seemed much happier about that, even though Kenneth couldn't quite grasp why they would be happy about throwing a body over the side as opposed to having a serpent eating it. It just goes to show, again, like, because they're free of the serpents, it means they're free of the slave trade. It's just another change in perspective or their circumstances. You know, it's just another sign that that life is over. And not only that, I feel like, sure, the dead man... Once you're dead, you don't really care what happens to you. But the fear of knowing that when you die, you're going to be fed to a giant serpent, that probably wouldn't be as good. I mean, like, that's not a happy thought and it would be really stressful. And so now at least, you know, like, hey, if I die next, nothing's going to come eat me right away. I get to, like, have a little bit of peace and death. Right. Which... I think makes sense, but it also got me to thinking about how the serpents have been eating a lot of humans. And this is a super weird tangent to go off on like two pages in, but I was thinking about it and I'm wondering if part of the reason the serpents are deformed or aren't fully formed with memories when they become dragons, the ones that survive. I'm wondering if part of that was due to the decades that they spent eating humans and mixing their memories with their bodies. Because I believe when dragons eat a human, that's taking their memories in, right? That's a big honor for a dragon to eat a human because it means that their memories will live on with theirs forever. And so you'd think something of that would also pass on to the serpents. And so I'm wondering if that messes with them in any way. I also was thinking about how like the dragons can't get too close to humans because then their children will become instead of serpents, they'll become the others. Mm -hmm. And so that also made me think about like, I wonder what's going to happen in the future generations because so many generations were so firmly entwined with human life in a way that they probably weren't before. That is very interesting, but you do have to remember that a lot of the serpents that are following slave ships around are just meaningless, like mindless animals right now and are not the ones that make the journey to the spawning grounds. I I feel like that's kind of mentioned somewhere that they try to talk to other serpents that are following and it's really hard to reach them. It's only when I think Vivacia is able to talk to some of the serpents Mm. and eventually get through. Like Malkin's Tangle, for example mostly has their mind they're still hunting in open waters and things like that but that is a really interesting thought that definitely could have contributed i mean obviously it's also the multi multiple generations that they skipped right yeah extremely elderly (laughs) yes (laughs) but yeah that does kind of uh, make sense in a way i like that too so kenneth is describing them pulling into a skew here 
saying that there is a, uh, a foundered ship thrust up skeletally at the shallow end of the anchorage. The village itself had sprung up as a row of huts and houses along the beach. These shelters were made from old ship's timbers, driftwood, and stone. Thin smoke rose from a few chimneys. Two makeshift fishing boats were tied to a battered wharf, and a half-dozen skiffs and coracles were pulled up on the sandy shore. It was not a prosperous town. The Marietta led the way, and Kennet had to admit a grudging pride that the slaves come sailors, that were the main crew of the fortune now, did not shame him. They worked lively, if not as skillfully as seasoned salts, bringing the big ship in and setting her anchors well. The fortune was now flying the raven flag that was known throughout all the pirate isles as Kennet's emblem. By the time both ships had their boats away, a curious crowd had gathered on the rickety wharves to gawk at the newcomers. The ragtag community of former slaves and refugees boasted no ship of their own larger than a fishing boat. To see two merchant ships anchor in their harbor must make them wonder what tidings or goods they brought. And so Kennet sends Sorcor ashore alone because he's like, I don't want to deal with any of these people. No one's going to have enough money that I want for the fortune. So find the best offer you can and I'll accept it. Right. And again, this is a way that Kennet is trying to dampen the spirits of Sorcor. He decides that knowing that he's not going to get a profit is worth it because it will show Sorcor that it's not worth the trouble that they spent to find this boat and that he should have listened to him when they should have just sold the cargo down at Chalced anyway, which again, I don't think at any point Kennet calls the slavers people. He is continuously calling them cargo. Well, he he's calling them cargo when they're slaves. Now that they're freed, they are sailors, right? So the ones that are helping. So, yes. Yeah. The ones that are helping or whatever. So Yes, I think if in his mind, if they were just quote unquote freed, they could have just taken the ship and sold them off. And they would still have been slaves technically. And he would have been perfectly fine with that because more money. Right. No, he, I don't know. I just think it's such an interesting thing that his morals are very like, who cares what happens to other people as long as I'm doing okay. Which I guess is kind of the pirate way. And like in some circles, but I don't know. (laughs) I <laughs> love it. I wish he was a nice pirate. <laughs> he says that the slaves were already crowding the railings, awaiting their chance to disembark from the floating prison, and Kennet had not expected the townsfolk to be so eager to welcome his riffraff. Well, all to the better. The sooner the fortune was unloaded and sold, the sooner he could be back to more profitable pursuits. And then he says, don't disturb me, I'm going to go below. So, after a while... He uh, is down below. He's looking at charts and papers that he got from the fortune. And that came a few days ago when he finally decided to go over to see the ship when it was kind of scrubbed clean and a little bit better on the nose. (laughs) Right. But it is really important, these papers that he's mentioning, because they are the ship's chart. And in Kenneth's mind, this is the one win he got out of all of this, is that ship's charts are money. Like these are treasures that Sorcor overlooked because he didn't realize what he was missing out on. This is like a really big deal. We briefly were, uh, had a mention in one of Althea's point of view chapters, I think. Oh no, it would have been, um, her mom, Ronica, because she was making 
Kyle made the comment at her that there's yeah. no way he would uh, that he would throw Efren away the would throw away charts, charts because yeah. that's losing money. So we had a little hint that sailors view highly of these trading charts. And now we have Kenneth telling us exactly why he has found these hand drawn maps. He now knows what most slavers, at least if not traders know about the pirate isles. He knows the, what they have mapped, what they haven't, what is correct, what is not. And it's all a wealth of information. And there's stuff written in handwritten in the corners telling him secret things they may have heard in their travels. And so it's just a really good way for him to be able to judge what people know that he wasn't able to know before. Yeah. But he does say that he can't believe that the traders would know as much as the slavers. He would think that they would know more because the live ships and their families had plied these waters for many years longer than the slavers had. The Chalcedian slave trade had largely created the pirates and their settlements, so we would have to assume that most trader families who plied these waters would have better knowledge of them than the slavers. Why had not that knowledge been shared? The answer was obvious. No trader would willingly extend his own advantage to his competitors. He leaned back in his chair. So, what had he learned, really? Nothing he had not already known. Slavers would be easier to capture than live ships, but that did not mean that capturing a live ship would be impossible, only that he might have to give it more thought to it. So he was kind of comparing like, well, this main passage, my main plan in general was to control the main passage through the Pirate Isles. That's the only thing properly mapped here. Pirate settlements are off on this slaver's map. We've abandoned some anyways. We want to avoid the slavers because they raid pirate settlements. So I can assume that controlling the main passage is still the best route. Maybe the live ship traders and the, the traders in general don't have any more knowledge than the slavers, but he can't quite rule that out. So he's still thinking like, main passage is my best chance to see them, but I can't think that they might have other ways to get through. Right. It just reaffirmed his already his plan and his thoughts already on how things yep. would be. But it is really interesting to hear that they had seven pirate towns marked. Four of them are correct, but three are wrong. One being an abandoned location and two are incorrectly placed. So still information. I mean, I think it's valuable as is. And he now has charts that show him where they are normally going, where other slavers are, which I guess I was thinking like, oh, that would be good for their continuous uh, plight against the slave traders to like go after them. They know exactly what route they're going to take now. They could hide better. And then I remembered that Kenneth really doesn't care about the slaves. No, he so. does not. So he's not going to think of that as a positive. Also, I think it's mainly where he was patrolling anyways. True. It's that main channel, so. But his mind strays back to when he found the charts, when he first went over to the Fortune to eventually find these charts. It had been a ship of freed men for three days before he visited, and that had wrought some change in the level of stench, though not enough to placate Kenneth's nose. He hadn't really given any thought to it when he put Rafo in charge of the ship, but he was acquitting himself well in his new position. They had scrubbed out a lot of stuff above board, and that smelled way better, but with the open hatch... On the uh, from the below decks, a fetid stench still welled up. 
there were simply too many live beings crowded aboard the vessel. They were huddled in knots on the deck, bony limbs thrusting out of tattered rags. Some were endeavoring to help work the ship, others simply trying to stay out of the way. Some were engaged in absorbing business of dying, interested in nothing else. So he's walking the length of the ship, keeping a handkerchief up to his nose and mouth, with the eyes of the slaves passing him. Every one of them spoke softly as he passed. Eyes flooded with tears at his approach, and heads were bowed before him. At first he thought they groveled in terror of him. When he finally realized their murmurs were expressions of thanks and blessings upon him, he did not know whether to be amused or annoyed. Unsure of how to react to such a display, he resorted to his accustomed small smile and made his way to what had been the quarters of the ship's officers. So he kind of finds the captain's quarters the same that Sorkor reported. His taste in clothes was not very good. <laughs> and eventually does find a small hidden compartment with the charts. And he says to himself, or in reminiscing, says, in a whimsical moment, he ordered the clothes distributed to those of the slaves who could make best use of it. And the man also had smoking herbs, which Kenneth never had really an addiction or a vice for. And those also he ordered passed out among the slaves. So he calls it like a whimsical moment, but there's a lot of small details that add up into a narrative that he is a generous, benevolent, caring man that frees slaves. Right. Yeah. It's, it really goes back to this idea that he has this luck on his side that any choice he's making by sheer luck is the right choice. Catalyst. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do. I don't know. I was thinking about this too. I don't know if I think he's a catalyst, but then what is he like an anti-catalyst? I don't know. No, no, no. He, I think he is a catalyst just because we, like we talked last episode too, and Mm -hmm. you brought up, everybody can be a catalyst. Everyone has to make a choice. Right. It's just people usually go towards this one path, right? And it's really hard to stray from your obviously set before you choices. Right. Kenneth, I feel like trusts his quote unquote luck against some things that he would rather do like in a scene later on in this thing, he he wants to defend himself and be mad at Sorkor because there's a big feast in town, but he trusts his luck slash listens to his wizardwood charm and just smiles and stays calm and it works out for the best. So I, th- I just think like he gets little nudges towards the better options. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just so interesting that he always chooses the right path, quote unquote yeah. for him. Because I mean, I feel like Fitz doesn't do that for sure. So, so what is it about? <laughs> what is it about Fitz being a catalyst that means that he has to suffer for all of eternity? And Kenneth, because the world is trying to kill Fitz, and Fitz doesn't want to die. <laughs> fair enough, I guess. Also, Fitz's choices are like for the world at large, and Kenneth's are more about his own. Yeah, and that might be easier to go against the grain with. I don't know. Whatever. But either way, we have this scene where Kenneth is really unknowingly and luckily making choices that make him look better later. I also think that it's really interesting that throughout this whole telling of when he was on the ship, we get the thor- the the theater of Kenneth. And we're seeing that, you know, like he's not sure how to react, but it's not necessarily a happy emotion. So instead of doing that, he's got the playful smile on his lips. He wants everybody to know that he is smirking and this doesn't bother him one way or the other. He's in control. He expected everything. 
Yes. And I just find that so interesting because again, we're getting it from Kenneth's point of view and he thinks that is how he's coming off. But I really do wonder if people think that about him. Like if he's, it sounds like he, people do, you know, like in general, I I'll have to wait until Wintrow's point of views with him or maybe Edo's point of views, like viewing him from the outside. But I really do think most people think that he plans everything. He's in control of what he's doing, you know, and he knows. I think I mean more like whenever he says, like, I put the small smirk, the knowing smirk on my face. Like, do people think that's what he looks like? Are they like, wow, that's a knowing smirk. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's the sort of thing I'm thinking about. Either way, he's trying to, he's going along this ship. He found those charts and now he wants to inspect below decks to see if there's any cargo that Sorkor might have missed or anything like that. So he descends the ladder into the hold and looks about him with watering eyes. And he sees a lot of the freed slaves there. All faces turned towards him and the lantern Rafo carried sent its light to dance in all of those eyes. They reminded him of rats seen near midden heaps by night. Why are they so thin? He demanded suddenly of Rafo. The journey from Jamalia is not so long to leave, as to leave folk like bones unless they were fed nothing at all. Kennet was shocked to see Rafo's eyes narrow in sympathy. Most of them have been in debtor's prison. Many are from the same village. Somehow they displeased the satrap and he raised the taxes for their valley. When none of them could pay, all of them were rounded up to be sold as slaves. Almost the whole village, and not the first time such a thing had happened from what they say. They were bought and held in pens and fed cheap until the folk trading in them had enough to make a full load. Simple folk like these these are don't bring a high price, they say, so they try to haul a lot at once. The ship had to be packed full in order to ensure a decent profit. And Rafo lifts up his lantern and Kenneth sees that it's not just the people that he immediately saw, but there's multiple peoples behind that row. And... Then there's a vast empty hold behind that. There was nothing there. Scrubbed clean. It was just held people. And he he also says that the, the ammonia stench made tears roll freely down his cheeks. He ignored them and hoped they were not noticeable in the dimness. So I want to paint the picture from the outside here. He comes down the ladder the captain who freed everyone here. And all of a sudden he turns to his mate. Why are they so thin? It shouldn't have, they shouldn't be this starved. They just came from Jamalia. Right. And he starts crying. Yep. After hearing their story. Yeah. After hearing that story, what a benevolent man. So what full a, of empathy. Right. Wow. A strong man. He, he can kill one day and cry for the poor the next. It's truly <laughs> a Robin hood. It's, <laughs> It is, yeah, it is really interesting, especially as a rereader, to read this chapter because you know how it's being taken, and yet you have the monologue of Kyle being like, "Oh, I Kenneth. hate these." Sorry, Kenneth. We'll get to Kyle soon. We will. Um, but you have this monologue of Kenneth where he says, "You know, all these horrible things of like their cargo. I don't really care about them. Honestly, the stench is the worst thing here, and they look like rats." Like wretches that are just muttering around him. Yeah. And he like is disturbed and disgusted by the fact that they're giving him thanks. It's such an interesting juxtaposition to 
like you just said, the picture that everyone else is seeing Mm -hmm. because they don't hear his internal monologue. And so they're kind of the the freed slaves in the the hold here are kind of crowding around him and his hair is standing on the back of his neck. And a woman, braver or stupider than the rest, stepped in front of him and offers him a bundle of rags. He peers into the rags and it is a baby with a... Uh, a bluish X that some diligent slaver had already marked besides the child's nose. She says, born on this ship, born into slavery, but freed by you. What could I ever offer you in thanks? Kenneth could feel his control over his rising gorge slipping. The thought of the only thing she might offer him made his flesh crawl. The breath of her mouth smelled of rotting teeth loose in her gums. He bared his own teeth for a moment, a parody of a smile. Name the child Sorkor for me. He suggested in a choked voice. She seemed to miss the sarcasm in his voice, for she blessed him as she stepped back, beaming and clutching the skinny infant. The rest of the crowd jostled stiflingly closer, and several voices were lifted. Captain Kennet! Captain Kennet! He forced himself to stand his ground and not retreat. Instead, he motioned to the sailor preceding him with the lantern, and then commanded in a wheeze, Enough! I have seen enough. He was not able to keep the distress from his voice. And he rises to the deck and out loud he says a waste such a waste and then returns to the marietta but in his mind not thinking about such a waste of like these poor humans human life what a waste of human life he's thinking (laughs) he forced himself to consider this prize sorkor had won for him the ship had appeared sound enough but he'd never get a decent price for her not if the buyer had a nose at all what a waste (laughs) Yeah, and everybody else is like, oh my gosh, he's the nicest man alive. I can't believe he graced us with his presence. Like, ugh. So so we're back in askew. We are docked up. He's finished looking at the charts, and he decides it's time to go into the town. I do just for a second want to bring up something that we haven't touched on. We kind of skipped over. There is a point when he is still on the ship that he is, especially when he's still in the captain's cabin where he is looking around and thinking about how Sorkor would probably be amazed by this. And then he (laughs) makes the comment that he thinks that Sorkor might be more amazed to realize that this man isn't some horrible boogeyman. He's just a normal person that had trinkets and knickknacks just like everybody else. Wife and a child that he took well, uh, took care of well. And like, I think that's such an interesting thing that he is like humanizing the slaver and then immediately going out and seeing these hordes of people that were abducted from their homes for no reason, basically not being able to pay taxes, I guess is a reason, but not a good one considering we know the taxes are only being raised because the satrap needs to pay for more drugs and horrible vices and then is selling these people into slavery And he looks at those people and instead of humanizing them or like feeling some sort of compassion, he's just kind of like, ugh, the rats. Because they're disgusting. The traitor was a captain of his own ship just trying to make a living. Right. And I think that is such an interesting thing about Kenneth is that when he wants to be, he can put his himself in the shoes of somebody else but only if it's the slaver uh, like the master slaver it's i don't know i just thought that was a really interesting piece especially with everything else going on in the chapter of the these people are disgusting and i hate them (laughs) but now he's in a skew yes so he 
orders the ship's boy to get a boat. The sailors who are going to row the boat are very, very excited because they get to leave the ship. They get to go into the town. That means that they can go have a drink, whatever. So he heads, uh, gets rowed over, and they're on the docks of a skew and kind of silently ignored the grins the men exchanged. They tied up at the base of the dock. He ascended the rickety ladder and then awaited his men while he wiped the slime from his fingers with his handkerchief. As if he were passing out sweetmeats to children, he drew a handful of small coins from his coat pocket. It was enough for a round of small beer for all of them. He entrusted it to the man in charge with the nebulous warning, Be here and ready when I come back. Don't make me wait. The men clustered in a circle about them. Genkis spoke for them. Captain, you don't need to do that. After what you done, we'd be waiting here for you if every demon of the deep was after us. The sudden outpouring of devotion from the old pirate took Kennedy back. He could think of nothing he had done for them lately that should merit this sudden affection. In an odd way, it touched him as much as it amused him. Well, no sense waiting thirsty, boys. Do be here, though. No, sir, Captain. That we won't. Promise to be here, every one of us. And they, uh dance on their way over to the, the nearest tavern. So again, we have an example of Kenneth just not knowing what he's done for people recently. Not even considering freeing slaves would have an effect on former slaves themselves. Right. It is such an oversight, and it really is interesting to me because I feel like up until this point, up until this chapter maybe even, Kenneth is such a capable person. He's so knowing. He knows everything. He, even when he doesn't, it's still something that's like within reason for him not to know. And he's really good at guessing and sussing out the situation. And then here we have Kenneth being so obtuse and so blind to the things going on around him. And I think it's so funny that we get this version of him where we see that maybe he isn't as smart and cunning as he believes himself to be especially with the anecdote right after he sends them off he can hear them discussing like what's the best way to get the most for their money and it says it pleased him to set these little dilemmas perhaps it even sharpened their wits like i and it says in the meantime he put put his own wits to puzzling out what he did for them recently like he is capable at reading certain situations. He is great at bartering. He is great at manipulating people to to feel what he wants them to feel if he sees them as somebody worth being manipulated by. Right. If they don't stand out in his mind, they are utter trash and he does not care about them. And it's such, like you said, such a huge oversight because the whole picture matters. Right. And it is really interesting for him to overlook something like that to me because he does have all these big grandiose plans and he wants to be king and he wants to rule over everyone. And so it's interesting to me that he doesn't care more or notice more about the little man, so to speak. It it fits into his character though, because one, he rules mainly by fear, right? right? But also by money and loyalty doing like big gestures for his crew, right? He wants them loyal. He wants them to like him, but also fear him in general. And he leaves the, the micromanaging of the crew's temper to his first mate. It's something below him. And he's also talking about his plan only to his first mate. 
to get, you know, the temper of the crew or whatever. Right. But then he's also talking about, no, all of us rich people will kind of band together. The captains of the ships will talk about this and will agree, you know? Right. His All of his plans about ruling are all about swaying the powerful people and everyone else will follow. Right. What ends up happening is that he sways the lowest on the totem pole and that mass support gets him what he wants. Right. Yeah. So it, it kind of, and it, I don't think he ever acknowledges that he was wrong in how he was going about things either. I think he just takes it in stride. Right. Per usual. I don't think Kenneth has ever admitted he was wrong a day in his life. <laughs> he actually has in, in his point oh, of view. Yeah. That's true. He does. He's like, even I can learn things, but I mean, like, I think overall, if it's like his yeah, plan big, and big it works essence. for him. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> eh. I meant for that to happen. So while he's puzzling out what these sailors might have got to make them thankful to him, he immediately goes to suspicious ideas. He's like, oh, maybe there was extra treasure that Sorker already doled out. It might be very revealing to find out where Sorker was right now and what he was doing. That he had let the men believe such largesse had come from the captain did not excuse him from passing it out without making Kenneth aware of it. So he's thinking that Sorkor has done something. Sorkor has said, oh, Kenneth wanted this to happen to all the crew and gave him gave them like a reward. And Kenneth's kind of mad because like he's the captain. Right? Don't do that. Don't overstep yourself. Right. So he is ready for a fight. He is ready for something really weird and odd to be in town and be Sorkor's doing. Right. And he's also thinking about how like it would be OK, somewhat OK if Sorkor had done this and given him this grandiose and then told him about it before or right after. So he was also in the know, but he's extra mad because Sorkor has kept him in the dark and that is overstepping a Sorkor's duties. That is something that he really doesn't like because that's his job to do to everyone else. He does not like the idea of someone doing it to him. Right. And so he goes looking for Sorkor, who is not in either one of the two taverns, but instead he finds a giant celebration, a jubilant celebration. The entire population of the town seemed to be gathered in the street between the two taverns. Tables and benches had been dragged out in the light of day, and kegs rolled out and broached in the street. Kenneth's suspicions became even darker. This sort of jubilation usually bespoke coins by the handful, lavishly doled. He put a knowing look upon his face, accompanied by a small, tight smile. Whatever was going on here, he must appear to be informed of it, or be a fool before all. Say nothing. Trust your luck, chided a tiny voice. The charm at his wrist had a tiny melodic voice, unnerving in its sweetness. Above all, show no fear. Luck such as yours has no patience with fear. Again, the laugh. And he dares not lift his... You know, wrist to his face to converse with it or anything. He doesn't want to look crazy, so he just kind of keeps his smile on. Right. He finds a big celebration. I do want a quick pause to say that I think it's really funny that these people were basically stranded on this. They took their freedom back and are now stranded on this island. And the first thing they do is set up competing businesses. Right. Like- I know. <laughs> They're like, yeah, there's only like 50 of us, but, you know, I just really feel like it's my passion in life to fight against my friends for profits in my alehouse, and they have theirs. 
there's probably enough room in both of them to have the whole village. Maybe not in one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you need to. <laughs> that's fair. But I, I do still find it very funny. I don't know. That, that thought was just kind of funny to me. <laughs> so the crowd notices him and they scream out, Kenneth, Captain Kenneth, Kenneth. Others took up the cry, and then the summer air was ringing with his name. Like a beast stirred from licking itself, the mob turned faces towards him and then surged at him like an oncoming wave. Courage and smile, taunted the wizardwood face. He himself felt his sardonic grin was set in ice upon his features. His heart pounded, and the sweat started down his back at the sight of the mob coming towards him, fists and mugs raised to the sky. But they could not see that, no. All they would see as they closed on him was that small smile, and how straight and fearless he stood as they engulfed him. A bluff, perhaps, but a bluff only worked so long as the user believed it would. In vain, he tried to pick out Sorkor's face in that oncoming wave of humanity. He wanted to find him, and if, necess- if necessity dictated it, make sure he at least died before Kenneth did. So, very suspicious, very dark... Very understandable for where Kenneth's headspace is at and how his humanity and his pain went into Paragon. But dark place that he goes to. Right. And I think it's so interesting because I normally feel like Kenneth is good at reading emotions on people. But in this moment, he really isn't. It's I, I really think it's because he was left in the dark in his own mind about the slave thing. Like he right. doesn't understand how there could be happiness at this he's expecting to find Sorcor chastened because he can't sell you know the ship for a lot of money and he has to bring that back to his captain and all these slaves are going to be here and they're not going to have a good life and it's just not worth all the things so he's expecting to see the village sad as well to take all these new people in like right it's a burden right it's a burden that he's giving this town and instead he finds a celebration he's like Something as shady is happening here. <laughs> right. But I, but also just the whole crowd is running towards him. They're all screaming his name and I can't imagine they're saying it in like a angry mob sort of way, which I feel like you can definitely tell the difference between someone when someone is angrily shouting something and when somebody is cheering on something like the difference between a protest and a rally, <laughs> very different vibes, very different things being said. I just can't imagine that he's like hearing all these people chant his name and he's like, that sounds like it could be an angry mob coming to destroy me. And then all these people have their fists raised high and their, probably, their beer in their hand. And probably he's pretty surprising. I mean, it would be surprising, but I just, I think it's extra surprising that he doesn't realize that they are happy, that this isn't an angry mob coming to fight him. And that's what he feels like it is. He is preparing for the worst as they continue to surround him. He is trying to pick out the weakest ones in the crowd. He's looking and analyzing all of them and he's, they're getting awfully close, but not close enough to his fist where he could actually hit them yet. And he wants them to make the first move, which is lucky because then he realizes that he was wrong. Yeah. So a woman pushes forward saying she is Teala. She runs askew and she starts crying, saying, And I tell you that anything here is yours. Yours for the asking. Anytime. Anything. For you have brought us our own, whom we never thought to see again. Trust the luck. He returned her smile and with his most gallant bow and silent heartfelt regrets for the wasted lace, offered her his handkerchief. She took it from him as if it were embroidered with gold. 
How did you know? she asked brokenly. How could you have guessed? One and all, we were astonished. I have my ways, he assured her. He wondered at what it was he was supposed to have known, but he did not ask, did not even flinch when her hand fell on his shoulder with a whack, surely meant to be welcoming. And they sweep him towards the feast. And they say, bless the man who delivered our kin and our neighbors from slavers and brought them here to join us in freedom and a new life. Bless the man. And this is what this is about. That not only has Kenneth freed slaves, which has gotten his ship crew excited, but he has picked the very spot that the other half of the village has ended up. Yeah, this is... So the, the first crew, the slave ship that ran aground and broke out and founded Askew, are from the same village as this other ship of slaves. Yeah. It is like... Like a generation later. Yeah, they are 10 two. years apart. Yeah. This is, so they've been separated for 10 years. And this is the biggest stroke of luck. Like there is... The, the odds have got to be crazy <laughs> for this to have been able to happen and for Kenneth to have not messed it up before like finding out that, that they all thought that he knew. And they do think that he knew. I don't know why they just assume he knew and that's why he chose there. Maybe it has something to do with Sorkor and he's like, yeah, he's the one who was adamant that we bring them here. He knew. Probably, yeah. But I don't know. It's just so funny because, well, not funny, but it's just so weird. Like, yeah. what are the chances? His luck. <laughs> so he he's at this feast and he sees Sorkor with the baby in his arms and he looks chastened somehow, humbled with amazement. And Taela stands up and tells the story that 12 long years ago, they were brought there and they broke out and they found it askew. And they learned to live there, but they knew that they could never go home. She says our families, our village were lost to us forever. She turned suddenly to point down at Kennet until you brought it back to us today. Twelve years ago, she managed at last, after wiping away her tears. When they came to take us because we could not pay the satraps' taxes, I fought them. They killed my husband and took me, but my little girl ran away, and I never thought to see her again, let alone my grandson. She gestured fondly at Sorkor and little Sorkor. More tears welled up and choked her. It took her a bit, and soon other folk chimed in to help her and tell their own stories. By the most powerful of coincidences, most of the slaves on board the fortune had come from the same village as the original founders of Askew, but no one there believed it a coincidence. All, even Dower Sorkor, credited him with deducing it and deciding to bring them here to be reunited with their kin. He had not. But Kenneth knew it was not mere coincidence, but something far more powerful. Sheerest luck. His luck. Luck to be trusted and never questioned. So... One detail that we kind of glossed over is that after he went to the ship, that he found the charts, he went down into the hold and, you know, saw them and had his like powerful moment of crying or whatever. When he got back to the Marietta, that's when he had the conversation with Sorkor to go to Askew instead of Divi Town because right. he wanted to get rid of them as fast as possible because it was a waste. He wasn't going to get any money anyway. So just dump the ship off soon as possible. Right. <laughs> it's and so Sorkor can piece it together. He's a smart man. He's like he hears the story of Kenneth crying and being 
you know, full of emotion for these slavers. And then he immediately comes back and is like, we have to go to Askew. And it turns out they're from there. Sorkor's like, this man's a genius. He is the the biggest brain I've ever met. <laughs> Galaxy brain. just. <laughs> but the really interesting thing is that it wasn't an easy easy argument obviously Kenneth won out in the end because he's captain and he has more practice at convincing people to do what he wants but we don't have Sorkor being like yeah let's just do it from the get-go and so it's really easy to look back and be like oh no wonder he was pushing so hard right he knew the secret and it it's really well done it's amazing coincidences one after the other it's a little line of dominoes yeah and Kenneth, not wanting to forsake his luck, not wanting to disdain what has happened, takes advantage of the situation. He decided he dared to be worthy of it. Shyly, so humbly, he asked Teala, Have my men told you of the prophecy I received from the others? Her eyes widened. She sensed something immense to come. Like a widening ring of ripples, her silence spread. All eyes turned towards him. I have heard something of what was said, she said cautiously. As if overcome, Kenneth cast his eyes down. He let his voice drop deep and said softly, Here it begins. Then he drew a deeper breath and brought the words up from the depths of himself, powering them with his lungs. Here it begins, he announced, and contrived to make it sound as if they were an honor he was bestowing on them. It worked. All about him, eyes shone with tears. Taylor shook her head in slow disbelief. But what have we to offer you, she asked, almost brokenly. We are a village with next to nothing. No fields to till, no grand houses. How does a a king begin here? Kenneth put gentleness into his voice. I begin as you begin. With a ship which I have taken for you. With a crew which I have trained for you. Work the ship. I shall leave Rafo here to teach you the ways of the Raven Flag. Take whatever you will from whoever passes and make it your own. Remember how the satrap took all from you, and do not be ashamed to reclaim your wealth from the merchants of Jamalia that he cossets with your blood. He glanced at the shining gaze of his first mate and was inspired. But I warn you, suffer no slaver to pass unchallenged. Send the crews to the serpents who will welcome them, and gather their ships here. Of all cargo that is aboard these ships, I give Askew a full half. A full half! He repeated it loudly, to be sure they all knew of his generosity. Keep the rest here in safety. Sorkor and I will return before the year is out, to take a tally and to teach you how such things are best sold. So he toasts them all off and everyone's cheering because he is giving them a ship and he gives them hope and he gives them a directive to take back what is theirs and to free more slaves probably more importantly right i really think that if he had not added the slave part at the end the part about not letting any slavers pass that this probably wouldn't have worked long term yeah short term yes but long term i agree with you i think Without that commitment to like, yes, this was what I planned all along. We want to free the slaves. You have to do that. Like without that, there's no continued gratitude. There's no more people coming in being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they saved us. This guy's the best. And he's helping them build. And it's like times like this, I feel 
like, wow, Kenneth is kind of a good person. I mean, he does good deeds. He is doing good deeds. He's helping them learn. He's helping them create a better civilization. He's having them get back at the people who destroyed their lives. Like he is doing good things. And yet he is so vile on the inside. Yes. Yeah. He literally ends that big speech and looking at everybody being so excited with Tayella did not seem to realize he had just stolen her village's control from her. And that's like, he's like, ha ha, I've gotten the village. But the thing is, is that it wasn't that hard for him to get. Right. Yeah. It's not like they were well, fighting him on it. <laughs> it. It had a lot of luck. involved. I mean, yes, but like he's acting as though like, oh, right. Yeah. Unbeknownst to her because she's so beneath me. Like She literally offered it to you, bud. <laughs> his gaze met the worshipful eyes of his first mate, and he knew once more he had his leash secured. He smiled at the man and even at the baby he was doting on. A laugh almost burst from Kenneth's chest as this final piece tumbled into place. Sorkor believed Kennet had honored him, that Kennet had hung his name on the baby as a sort of reward to him. He did not fight the widening of his own grin. Instead, he lifted his bull high once more. With a pounding heart, he waited for the noise to subside around him. When it did, he spoke in a deceptively soft voice. Do as I teach you, he bade them gently. Follow my ways and I shall lead you to peace and prosperity. The roar that greeted this near deafened him. He lowered his eyes modestly to share a secret grin with the small face on his wrist. The revel- revelry lasted long, not just the night, but over into the morning. And everyone's celebrating this. Right. Kenneth, Kenneth has his start. He does, and this proves to be a successful start. This is the first block in a long pile of dominoes that will lead to him being king. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. good coincidence that he even got this this far. And Sorkor comes to him in the morning, in a quiet part of the morning, and tells him and asks him for forgiveness, actually, for doubting him. Because he had believed to that his captain was a heartless sort of man, cold as a serpent. Kenneth did not need to ask him what had changed his mind. He had already heard from several sources how moved they had all been when he himself, by all accounts one of the most hardened captains in the Pirate Isles, had been reduced to tears at the sight of their misery in the hold. He had rescued them, he had wept for them, and then he had restored them not only their freedom, but their lost families. He realized too late that he could have cleaned this place without giving them a ship as well, but what was done was done and half of whatever booty they managed to seize would come to him without effort. It was not a bad beginning. Not a bad beginning at all. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the idea that Kenneth is really good at manipulating people, and he's very lucky. Yeah. And it's so interesting to have Sorkor where he's like, I'm so sorry, I thought you were heartless. And it's like, no, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> You're straight right. Like <laughs> He actually is heartless. None of this was supposed to happen. This is like best case scenario for Kenneth. And he didn't even plan it. Caught up in the emotions. Like, yeah, Kenneth, after you had the conversations with him, Sorkor is going to go, yeah, let no slaver pass unchallenged. Right. Sorkor probably thinks that he changed his mind seeing all these wretches because he believes the story of him crying, you know, like. Right. And it all falls into place. And not only that, that like, of course, his mind changed when he saw the living conditions, because who would be so heartless as to see human beings 
piled up into the bottom of a ship. And that's not even all of them anymore because some of them are on deck and have walked away. Who would, who would be so heartless as to look at that and then say, yeah, no, they're still just cargo. Kenneth would be, but nobody else knows that. And so it's easy to believe, oh yeah, he changed his mind after really seeing it because Kenneth wasn't a, technically a slave before this. Like he didn't have the background of being a slave. Like, a lot of his sailors do. So I guess maybe in that way, it's believable that like he had to see it for himself to understand. But also I think it it's partly due to the fact that Sorkor wants to believe that Kenneth is this good person. Yeah, definitely. Because who wants to believe that somebody is okay with slavery? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, Kenneth has a start and we move on over to Kefria. Who is having breakfast with Kyle the first time in two weeks that they've really had time together because Kyle just comes to their house late at night, gets up early to go back to the ship. Right. And I do want to say these two halves of the chapter, um, the first half, I felt very much Kyle-esque in that I was very mildly perturbed, a little aloof. Not necessarily happy, but things were progressing and I allowed it. And then we get to this half of the chapter where we're focused more on Kyle, even though it's Kefria's point of view, but we're focused on Kyle. And I just got more and more angry. So (laughs) so you know what? (laughs) Props to Robin Hobb for really giving me the full experience. (laughs) (laughs) So Kefria is asking Kyle if she can see Wintra one more time before they head out. And Kyle's not having it. He's like, nope, it would just, you know, invite weakness. I'm not going to have him leave the ship. Not even thought of like, yeah, you and your mom can come down to the ship or anything. No, it's just, I'm not taking him off the ship. You can't see him. He'll have weakness again. He'll come back in a little bit and he'll be a strapping young man. You'll see him then. It'll be great. Not just become a strapping young man, a strapping young man that you can be proud of. As though Kefria isn't already proud of her son just for being her son, which I think is interesting because Kefria definitely just loves her kids. I think that's the biggest thing this chapter is that Kefria does care a lot about her children and it's killing her that she doesn't get to be there for Wintrow. But that doesn't matter to Kyle. That's not a good enough reason. And then he says, it would not be good for either of you or your mother. She's had a hard enough time lately losing Efren. Let's not make it worse for her. And that's something he also repeats a few times throughout this whole thing, just saying, your mother's not in her right headspace. Basically, Kefria, only listen to me. Your mother doesn't know how to make sound decisions right now because of her grief. Right. It's a really interesting laying this groundwork of you can't trust your mom and don't trust your mom. And I think if given enough time, he would be able to successfully convince Kefria, especially if there wasn't the added fact of Wintrow being involved. Even if he just stayed around most mornings instead of just hurried off to the ship, I think she would have been convinced by now. Right. But he's given her too much time alone to really realize that he doesn't know anything. (laughs) Too many changes too quickly, just like Elthia experienced, right? She just kind of like shut down. Now Kefria is slowly, very, very slowly starting to realize some things that are just like, this isn't how I wanted it to be. Right. Things are too different. Yes. There's, there's a, uh, it's really quick, but there's like a disgusting part in here where he's just like arguing against her and it just starts. Uh, he lifted his own cup, frowned into it and set it down. More tea. If I brought him home, 
here where his mama and granny, he'd but take it as a sign he could whine to you. And then the next paragraph starts with Kefria quickly leaned forward to replenish her husband's cup. Like, it's just so. Ugh, it's just icky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything about Kyla is icky. And that is like a really good example of just like the role he views his wife as. Yeah. It, she isn't equal to him, which uh, is I, I think the most frustrating part to me is that he sees her as lesser. And it's very clear in this chapter that he sees her as lesser, both in the way he undermines her parenting and in the way he shuts down anything that she would desire if it doesn't align with his own. There's a couple things. I think, yes, overall, he does see her as lesser. But he also, in the back of his mind, I think he knows that she has knowledge that he does not. And he's very insecure about not being in charge of everything, not knowing everything. Very similar to Kenneth. Right. And so that shifts over to anger quite easily for him. We see it later on, and I'll point it out a little bit more. But, yeah, it's just... (laughs) it's. Kyle up close and personal with a point of view from one of his victims. Right. And also I think having this um, point of view, we can really tell that like the insecurity, like you said, it is definitely coming from that insecurity place and it's putting her down to feel better. Yeah. Like, see, I am better than her. Even if she might know something, I don't. Kefri was really hoping she asked Kyle to have see Wintrow or whatever. But at the end of that, she says she recognizes the tone in his voice when he spoke of Wintrow. There was no arguing with it. Best for the sake of peace to set her hopes aside. And like, that's not how you should be talking about having a normal discussion with a partner. Like, you should not be like, oh, well, they don't like this, so I'm going to stop because otherwise it won't like that'll really disrupt the peace. Like that's concerning. Yeah. I know that this is kind of the worst he's been to Kefria that we know of, but clearly there were some things happening before now that she knows when she can get her way or not necessarily get her way, but when she can convince him to do something she wants to do and when she can't. And that the consequence of pushing too far is so bad that she doesn't want to push now even though it's something she really wants. And that's really sad. <laughs> that's like not a fun way to live. She's thinking of her son in the same context of when he was first sent to the monastery. Like, I don't know anything about his life. I don't know how he's doing or anything, but she's comforting herself. At least I know where he is instead of not knowing where Althea is, you know? And she's just this back and forth kind of like, There's nothing I can do, I guess. She's trying to make herself feel better with a situation in in a place where she really doesn't have a lot of power. And she does also make the comment of like, at least, you know, at least she knows where he is, like you said. But also Kyle's his dad. Surely he would let no harm come to him and would tell her if there were any real reason for concern. And no doubt he was right about the boy. You know, perhaps his firmness, what what was called for. After all, what does she know of boys his age? It's so sad. It's like clearly he has trained her to have these thoughts of, well, what do I know? Nothing. He knows more and he he's right. Yeah. And I hate that that's what her thoughts devolve into. And then it's she took a steadying breath and moved resolutely to her next topic of concern. Have you? She hesitated. Has Althea been down to the ship? So Kefria went into this with a few topics she wanted to touch on. And 
when the first topic gets shut down, like pretty much instantly, she's steadies herself and moves on to the next one because she knows it's no use. Right. It's like, well, I'll at least get all the topics out that I wanted to. And it's basically the same garbage that Kyle responds with. Like, no, uh, not since Torg chased her off. I told her she can't come aboard, but like, at least I thought he would have the sense to call me. I would have dragged her back here. And Kefri is like, it sounds by his tone that it wouldn't have been <laughs> no matter what her opinion of it was. And it's basically the the tough love that from his point of view of she needs a firm hand and needs to be back where she belongs kind of thing and whatever. She'll be fine. She's yeah, probably and, living in town with no money. Right. And LCS point of view doesn't matter. <laughs> Kefri is, is still worried, very worried about her sister because she hasn't heard anything from Althea and neither has their mother and she's really wondered and and very worried about the possibility that she might be murdered or whatever and Kyle just kind of brushes it aside it's it's not a concern she has money she's living in town and when that runs out she'll return because she doesn't know how to do anything is typical opinion of her right well not only that because her fear is that maybe she snuck onto the ship and yeah. will it will be a bigger deal because once they get out on sea and it's hard to get rid of her that she'll be stuck there and then what yeah she's just stubborn enough to try that and kyle's like no she, she's not on the ship kyle said shortly his whole tone dismissed kefria's conjecture as female silliness and oh, <laughs> I, like it's a valid fear and also like yeah althea probably could have snuck on the ship if she really wanted to <laughs> so kyle goes into his instructions for kefria now because he is positive that althea will just return when she runs out of money saying and when she does come home i want you to be strict with her don't fuss over her and tell her you were worried and don't scold like an angry hen she'll ignore that you need to be hard with her. Leave her without a coin to her name until she starts behaving herself. Then keep the leash short. He reached across the table and took her hand gently, his touch belying the firmness of his tone. Can I trust you in this? To do what is wise and best for her? It will not be easy, Kefria faltered. Althea is used to getting her own way, and mother, I know. Your mother is having second thoughts about all of this. Her judgment is not the best at this time. She has lost her husband and fears to lose her daughter as well. But she will only truly lose Althea if she gives in to her and lets her go her own wild way. If she wants to keep her, she must force her to come home and live her life properly. But I know that this is not how your mother sees it just now. Still, give her time, Kefria. Give them both time, for that matter, and they will see how right we are and come to thank us. There's a lot wrong with this train of thought, um, besides the obvious. But <laughs> yeah, stuff that we've harped on Kyle for a lot. Right. The whole like you have to control a woman and they don't know what's good for them. I mean, that that's not even just women. It's his In attitude general. about Wintro, too. Yeah. Anybody under him. Yeah. <laughs> People don't know what's good for them. I know what's best. And I think it's really interesting that he thinks like, oh, if you control them long enough, eventually they'll thank you for putting them in the right path. Yeah, Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But but also like. That isn't how that works. And like, you can tell that he also thinks that that's going to work with Wintrow, that someday Wintrow will change his mind and he will thank Kyle. And then Kyle will have been right all along. He doesn't realize that like, if Kyle didn't die in the series, 
Winter would probably go no contact the second he had the chance. Yeah. Like there is no getting over that level of control. If you are completely trying to change a person and refusing to let them be the individual they want to be, that's not something that you just forgive. And this isn't like learned. No, I shouldn't say that. This isn't like natural behavior or thoughts that Kyle has. This has to be learned from his father. Right. You know, this has to be his his philosophy of force them long enough and then they'll thank you eventually, even if they'll hate me for it. You know, that's right. probably how he feels about his own dad. Yeah, in some ways I'm sure. But I also wonder if maybe it was easier to forgive his dad because the values that his dad has are some that he was able to fit in with. I feel like possibly like, I don't know how to explain this in a very well, well said way, but I feel like sometimes, especially if you're in an oppressive home, it is easier to continue the cycle of oppression. If you kind of fit what the ideal is like, even if you aren't perfect and you don't live up to those expectations, you're at least like the right version of what you should be. And so you're not a total disappointment. You're not always being like, you have redeeming qualities. So you have a slight, you have a little bit of praise to go along with it. Right. Whereas with Wintrow, who is not somebody who is muscly and brawny and wants to be on ships. He's somebody who enjoys reading and who's a little bit scrawny and smaller in nature and gentler. Like he's never going to be the right thing because he just by nature is not that way. And it's not something he's interested in becoming like that doesn't seem like a good thing to him. And even if it did, I still think that there would be, Things blocking him from being like, okay, I accept you, dad. Like you really taught me it just forcing somebody to do things your way. Isn't the way to make them (laughs) agree with it. (laughs) And so now we have an interruption by Malta. She kind of peeks her head in and Kyle says, your mother and I are having conversation expects that to be the end of that conversation with Malta and goes back to Kefria and talks about the Inglesbury farm or Inglesby farm. Right. So this farm hasn't paid rent in over three years and he wants them out or them to pay rent. He wants to make this farm profitable. And Kefria, she took her key, her teacup and held it firmly in both hands. Sometimes when she had to correct her husband, it made her nervous and her hands trembled. Kyle disliked that. The Ingleby farm is mother's, Kyle. It was part of her bridal portion, and the tenants are her old nanny and her husband. They're getting up in years, and mother had always promised Tetna that she would be provided for, so Kyle set his own cup down so firmly the tea sloshed out onto the white cloth. He gave an exasperated sigh. And that is just the type of reasoning that will bring us all down. I have nothing against charity, Kefria, or loyalty, but if she must take care of some doddering old people, have her bring them here and put them up in the servant's wing and give them whatever tasks they can manage. No doubt they'd be more useful here as well as more comfortable. There is no reason to waste a whole farm on them. Tetna grew up there, Kefria began again, then jumped and gasped as Kyle's calloused palm struck the table in front of them. So again, he he turns to anger when he doesn't know something, because I'm guessing he did not 
realize that that was Monica's farm. Right. Well, I think the more important thing is he's not conceding that he doesn't have a right to dictate what happens there. He's just explaining why it's even more reason to take over for your mother because she doesn't understand. Because still, on some level, he does not understand how land holding does get passed on, which is interesting because you'd think that'd be the same for everybody, that like the way succession works makes sense. But no, he is like, well, it's still ours to deal with and you're going to deal with it the right way. Stop fighting yeah. me on this. And Kefri is coming at it from a place of like, well, I mean, first of all, it doesn't really matter because it's mom's, not mine. <laughs> and second of all, it's like for a good reason. There's a reason she's doing it. It's not just, mm -hmm. I don't know. Ugh, And it's not good enough. Yeah. And, and Kyle says, be silent a moment and let me finish what I'm trying to say to you. I know it is your mother's. I know you have no direct say in what she does with it. I merely desire that you pass on to her my advice, and with it, the warning that no more monies will be forthcoming to support it from your father's estate. If she cannot force it to yield enough money to keep up the repairs to it, then she will have to let it decay. But no more good money thrown after bad. That's all. And then he's done with that conversation, so he turns and points at Malta, who he knows is eavesdropping outside, and say, hey, Quit eavesdropping on your better. Now, what did you want to talk to me about? Right. So I think what's really interesting about this is, again, we have Kyle throwing around the purse strings that, like, you have to cut them off from your dad's funds unless they listen to me. Right. And specifically, he's saying this because he knows he actually doesn't have access to the funds. It's Kefria's. And so he has to convince her to do this. And he has to tell her that they don't get money. And realistically, we know by the end of this chapter that Kefria is going to do whatever Kyle tells her to do, even if she doesn't agree with it, which is sad. But it's a really hard thing to watch where he's just like, well, then they don't get our money. And it's not his. It's his mother-in-law's money. And he's like, well, then she doesn't get, my, uh, get your dad's money anymore. And also Althea, the whole, well, she comes back and you don't give her a single penny until she's really repented. It's what goes back to what the big argument was before Althea left. That sure, it's written in the contract that that's how it gets to work. That Kefri and Kyle now have control over the purse strings for Althea and Veronica. But the spirit is that they wouldn't do that. Right. And Kyle doesn't care about the spirit of the agreement. He cares about what's written. And that's why he keeps saying that Ronica doesn't have a good sense right now. She agreed to it before. And now all of a sudden she's changing her mind. Right. Yeah. And maybe on some level he does believe that she knew what she was signing up for. And just now that she can't really have a say is upset instead of realizing that they just deal differently. I don't know. So Kyle calls Malta in and she looks appropriately daunted and says, I beg your pardon, Papa. I wanted to wait until you and Mama had finished speaking so I could talk to you. Kyle gave a long suffering sigh and rolled his eyes at his wife. The children must be taught not to interrupt Kefria. Come in, Malta, as you cannot seem to wait in a patient and seemingly seemly way. What do you want? So... She's kind of avoiding her mother's eyes a little bit here. And then says, summer ball is past. We had to miss it. I understand that. But harvest 
the harvest offering is 72 days from now, and I wish to go. Her father shook his head in exasperation. You will go. You've gone since you were six. Everyone who goes, everyone goes who is of a traitor family, save those like me who must sail. I doubt I shall return in time to attend, but you know you'll go. Why do you bother me like this? And then Malta looks over at her mom, at her mom's disapproving face, and then up earnestly at her father. Mother said we might not go this year because of mourning grandfather, you know. She took a deep breath. And she said that even if we did go, I was still not old enough for a proper ball gown. Oh, Papa, I do not want to go to harvest offering a little girl's frock. Delotrell, who is the same age as I, is wearing a ball gown this year. Delotrell is 11 months older than you, Kefria cut in. She could feel the heat in her cheeks that her daughter dared bring this to her father as if it were her grievance. And if she attends the harvest offering in a gown, I shall be very surprised. I myself was not presented at the offering as a woman until I was fifteen, nearly sixteen. And we are in mourning. Nothing is expected of us this year. It is not fitting. It could be a dark gown. And Kefria spoke firmly. We will only go if your grandmother sees fit to go. I doubt that she will. And if we go, you will dress as is appropriate for a girl your age. Malta, of course, is very upset at this. Right. I'm not a little girl anymore, says the 12-year-old, by the way. Just as Almost a 13. Yeah. Like, <laughs> she's 12. And I get that, like, at that age, you don't want to be treated like a child. And obviously, there's, like, this weird time period where you'd have to be this awkward stage of, like, you have to dress like a child, but you're not really a child, but you're not really adult either. So you don't want to be presented as an adult. But, like... There should have been some middle ground created at some point. I don't know. That's all I'm saying. However, Malta doesn't see it that way. She thinks she's ready to be a woman. Yep, she wants a full ball gown. She doesn't want to wear skirts and, you know, put her hair in braids and wear flowers and no jewelry or anything. She's not a child like she was as if she was seven. And Kefria says enough. And to her surprise, Kyle laughs aloud. Come here, Malta. No, wipe your tears and come here. So, he looked down into her face. You think you're old enough to dress as a woman now? Next, you'll be wanting young men to come calling. Papa, I'll be 13 by then, Malta began, but he shushed her. He looked over his daughter's head at his wife. If you all go, he began carefully, would there be so much harm in letting her have a proper gown? I want to stop right here, because this right here, this undermining of Kefria, who has very clearly said on multiple times at this point, and even if she hadn't, it would be clear she didn't agree with it, has said that it is not appropriate and she does not approve of this. And this is a slap in the face to Kyle's whole, we need to come off as a firm front together, like we agree on everything. But the second he doesn't like the way he doesn't agree with Kefria, it's um, would it really be that bad if I got my way? I hate this so much. <laughs> I like he was so like, oh, we have to work together. We have to stand firm together unless I disagree with you. I do want to say that going back to my point earlier about his insecurities, about his knowledge and things like that, his lack of knowledge here kind of comes through. And he does say like he starts it carefully saying, if you all went, would it be that bad if she were down? Like it's not him taking control of the situation and making the decision like overriding Kefria, right? It's definitely undermining, but I just want to point out he starts this, like he said carefully, and there's a slight lack of knowledge of like, why is it so bad? Right. But also 
clearly it is that bad. Like, why wouldn't you just trust that your wife knows what she's talking about whenever she says no to your daughter? Like, obviously there's a reason for it. She could, he could ask her later, not in front of the child. And like, that's what he seems to expect of Kefria, but he can't give her that respect is. So Kefria protests. She's but a girl. Is she? Kyle asked. His voice was warm with pride. Look at your daughter, Kefria. If she is a little girl, she's a well-fleshed one. My mother always said, a boy is a man when he proves himself to be one, but a girl is a woman when she desires to be one. She gave her mother a pleading look. Ugh, I literally gagged when I read. Yeah. If he, if she's a girl, she's a well-fleshed one. Gross. <laughs> Gross. She's 12. And also your daughter. And, like, obviously he's not saying it in that way, but, like, he is a little bit... And it goes back to the whole thing that like women are lesser and that's the only thing they have going for them is that they like can use their body language (laughs) (laughs) to quote Ursula. (laughs) So Kyle or excuse me, Kefria is trying to conceal her shock that her husband would side with her daughter against her saying, Kyle, Malta, it is simply not seemly. What is unseemly about it? What will it hurt? This year, next year, what difference does it make when she graduates to long skirts, so long as she wears them well and they look becoming on her? She is only twelve, Kefria said faintly. Nearly thirteen. Malta sensed her advantage and pressed it. Oh, please, Mama, say yes. Say I may go to the offering and have a proper gown this year. No, Kefria was determined to stand her ground. We shall only go if your grandmother does. Otherwise, it would be scandalous. On that, I am firm. But if we do go, Malta wheedled. She turned to her father again. Oh, Papa, say I may have a proper dress if Mama allows me to go to the offering. Kyle gave his daughter a hug. It seems a fair compromise, he suggested to Kefria. To Malta, he added, You shall go to the ball only if your grandmother does, and no teasing or nagging about it. But if she goes, then so you shall, and you shall have a proper gown. Oh, thank you, Papa, Malta breathed as if he had granted her a lifelong wish. Something so like anger that it dizzied her coursed through Kefria's blood. And now, Malta, you may go. I wish to speak to your father. As you believe you are old enough to dress like a woman, you shall, allow, you shall show me you have the skills of one. Finish the embroidery that has been on your loom for three weeks now. And she runs out. Well, so, not before protesting and saying, well, but yes. that's going to take a long time. I wanted to play with my friends. Yeah, she runs out after <laughs> So I wanted to touch on a little bit of that previously, again, where Kyle kind of shows his ignorance. He doesn't know what it quite means. He says, what's unseemly about it? What will hurt this year, next year? What difference does it make when she graduates to long skirts so long as she wears them well and they look becoming on her? Because he doesn't know what that means in trader culture. Right. He doesn't understand that presenting yourself as a woman is presenting yourself as a woman. That that's opening the door to courtship and that there are things involved with courtship that you have to be trained to learn how to handle. And this is where, okay, so the next part here (laughs) is where it gets very, very infuriating if the previous part wasn't. Right. But I do want to mention first before we go on to this, to the next part, that it's so interesting because you can tell from reading this who respects who, right? Here we have Kefria knowing that her husband is lacking the knowledge and instead of explaining it to them to him in front of her daughter and embarrassing him, she makes Malta leave so she can have a real conversation and say, listen, right. this is why it's bad. 
and she's respecting him. That shows respect. That shows some level of respect of like, you're an adult and we're a team and I need you to understand why I want this this way and what you're missing. And I recognize that that would be embarrassing for you. So I'm making sure it's just the two of us. And instead of being grateful for that, or even showing her the same courtesy by saying, you know, I don't agree with your thing, but let me talk with your mother first. He doesn't care. He just does whatever he wants. And then it's everybody else's problem if they don't agree with him. And then when Malta leaves, he laughs. He bursts out laughing and says, if you could see your face, he managed at last. So angry to have your daughter get around you. But what can I do about it? You know she has always been my pet. Besides, what harm truly can it do? And again, his ignorance shows through, but he thinks it's funny that she's angry that his daughter worked around Kefria to get her way. Like, it's just... Can you imagine if Kefria even dared to laugh a little bit? At Kyle being upset. Oh, God. Kyle would probably murder her. Yeah. Like, actually. And yet, here he is like, it's so funny when women get angry. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself a lot. Like, ah, you're the worst, dude. And on top of that, like, poor Kefri is here like, I've literally never been more insulted in my life. This is the worst. And yet, noticeably, I don't see her slamming her hand on the table or throwing things around or hitting anybody. Interesting. <laughs> and again, we have this little statement of like, well, she's my daughter. I love her so much. And it's like, interesting. Isn't that what you said that you hated about Althea? That right. her dad spoiled her and gave her everything she wanted? Well, I think he'd been fine with it if Althea was just a traditional woman and everything that she wanted was jewels and dresses. I guess. Whatever. <laughs> So this is where Kefria kind of gets to have that adult conversation with Kyle, or try to at least. She lays out her reasons why this would be a bad idea, saying, It can attract to her an attention that she does, she has not been taught to deal with as of yet. Kyle, when a woman goes to the harvest offering in her first ball gown, it is more than an extra length of cloth to her skirts. It is an announcement that she is presented to Bingtown as a woman of her family, and that says she is of courtable age that her family will consider offers for her hand. So, Kyle demanded uncomfortably, we do not have to say yes. She will be invited to dance, Kefri went on inexorably, not by the boys her age with whom she has danced before, for they will be still seen as boys. She will be seen as a young woman. She will be dancing with men, both young and old. Not only is she still an indifferent dancer, but she has not been taught the skills of conversing with men, nor how to deal with attentions that are unwanted. She may invite improper advances without being aware she is allowing them. Worse, a nervous smile or a silly giggle may make it seem she is encouraging them. I wish you had spoken to me before you had allowed for her this. In the blink of an eye, Kyle went from dis discomfort to irritation. He stood abruptly, flinging his napkin to the table. I see. Perhaps I should simply live aboard the ship to avoid inconveniencing you while you determine the fate of our family. You seem to forget that Malta is my daughter as well as yours. If she is twelve and had not yet been taught dancing and manners, perhaps you should rebuke yourself for that. First you send my son off to be a priest. Now you behave as if I shall have no say in how my daughter is raised either. So this is... I, I want to... Quick point out before you uh, lay into Kyle here. This is 
the fruition of my point before, his insecurity and his lack of knowledge. He is very uncomfortable when Kefria is telling him these things. He's trying to maintain his front of like, yeah, we can just say no, right? But like, this is scary for him because that means like men are going to start talking to his young daughter, right? Right. But the last thing that she says, I wish you would have talked to me before you did this, triggers him and makes him change that insecurity, that lack of knowledge into from an instructional thing to putting blame on him. And he is mad about that. He's like, no, this is your fault that I'm in the dark and that she doesn't know what she's doing or anything like that. This is not about Malta. This is about your lack of proper education of our children. You want to exclude me from any decisions with our children. This is your fault, Kefria. As though he doesn't have any say over anything. He acts like she never lets him have his way. And this is the one thing he wanted to do for his daughter. And it's not even that big of a deal. But you're right. There is the sense of extreme insecurity here. And the discomfort, you can tell he's like realizing the mistake that has been made. But he can't admit weakness. No, not at all. Because that would mean that a woman knew more than him and better. And it's just... Oh my God. I hate him so much. I hate, I hate everything about him. This was like peak anger for me because he's sitting here like, well, then I guess that's your fault for not training her. She's 12 years old, dude. Who trains a 12 year old, how to be a mature woman. Like this would be the time when you start the training, not when you should let her become a woman and just whatever. Like nobody's training a nine year old, how to deal with unwanted advances from men. Yeah. Kefria's own, you know, Story as a child, she went to her mother's farm until she decided she wanted to look nice in dresses. And that was probably about 13 and then had two years to be presented. Right. And the fact she literally was trying to explain to him without telling him, like, I wasn't presented as a woman until I was at least 15. Almost 16. Yeah. Yeah. And he still brushes that off as like, so who cares? And like, even that, that's really young. But like, at least it's better than 12. And oh, this whole thing, I think it's worse because we know that Delotrell is not going to be yes. wearing women's skirts. Malta straight up lies about that. Mm-hmm. Although I think Delo is the one who lies to her because I Maybe. think they agree that they're going to convince their parents together or oh, something. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> but still, like, it's worse knowing that, like, Malta is probably enjoying this, number one. And number two is only caring about what she gets out of the situation. So she is really her father's daughter. (laughs) But the fact that he gets so upset that she just wanted him to converse with her. And she's not even saying, I won't allow it now. She's like, well, we're doing it because you said it, but I wish you would have talked to me first. Right. And that is enough to be like, you don't let me have any say in my children. It's like, dude, you're literally getting your way. I don't know what you want. And Kefria tries to appease him a bit, saying like, Kyle, come back, sit da- sit down. I just don't want Malta's reputation, you know, to be slandered or anything. I want her to be seen as a well-adjusted, well-raised young girl. Right. Or young woman. And Kyle was not appeased by that, saying, Then I suggest you see to her manners and her dancing lessons, instead of sending her off to work embroidery. As for me, I have a ship to attend to and a young man to straighten out. And that... Through a decision I had no say in at all. Hmm, kind of like how Kefria has to live all the rest of the decisions that you make, Kyle. What's that feel like? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. 
And Kefri just kind of has to sit there and think and long for the the return of the days when her father was a healthy man and he and Althea sailed while she and her mother stayed home and cared for the house and children. And she says when Kyle had come into port then, he had been the captain of the daring and it had been like a holiday. All had spoken well of him, how handsome, how dashing he looked. His days at home they had spent either dallying late in their bedchamber or strolling arm in arm about Bingtown. His sea chest had always brimmed with prizes for her and the children, and he had made her always feel like a newlywed bride. And ever since he had taken over the vivacia, he had become so serious, and so, so, she tried to think of the word. Grasping came to mind, but she rejected it. He was simply a man in charge, she decided to herself. And with her father's death, he had extended that to everything. And woefully, she thinks, all the holdings and everything, and even her mother and sister. And he, she's thinking on these better days, like they used to talk late in the night about nothing. He used to be romantic, and they used to tell stories of his travels and things like that. Very similar things to what Ronica thinks about Efren, but Efren maintained that through their whole thing, right. their whole marriage. And Kyle switched, just like a light switch over... Getting the vivacia. Literally getting a little bit of power and it went straight to his head and he's the worst. Which, there's no way he wasn't already kind of bad before this, but I think it was just more bearable. He was probably a little overbearing, but he didn't have the responsibility. He only had to give gifts gifts to his family, right? Yeah. Everyone spoke of him as handsome and, you know, a wonderful person and things like that. So. Right. I don't know. It just makes me think about like... He he was he was playing into his role, right? Like he didn't have to be controlling everything because Efren was the man in charge. Right. He was controlling everything. He could have disagreed with stuff Efren was doing, but he kept it all in his head until he had the power. Right. No, it definitely is really interesting to see Kefria's perspective of the old Kyle. Right. And it can't be that good of a picture considering Althea didn't like him before their voyage together. So he clearly it wasn't his distaste for how Efren ran things wasn't a quiet, I don't think, thing. I think this is something he made snide remarks at to probably Kefria, who didn't mind, and then Althea, who did mind. Right. But now he pretty much only talks about the cargo that he sold, what goods he's taken in the family fortunes and how everything is foundering. Over and over, he vowed to her that he would show the Bingtown traders a thing or two about sagacious management and shrewd trading. The nights they spent together brought her neither rest nor nor release. The days in port he spent with his ship, and now, she admitted barely, what she was looking forward to was his sailing. When he left, she could at least reclaim some of the peace of regular days and routines. She looked up at the sound of footsteps, both hoping and dreading that they heralded her husband's return. Instead, Ronica drifts in. I think that's a really telling thing that at this point in time, Kefria is kind of over it. She's like, you know what? At least he'll be back out at sea soon and I don't have to deal with him for right. a while. And that's probably not a good, like, <laughs> not a good how thought. you should feel about your husband. Yeah. <laughs> So Ronica drifts in now. Yes. And <laughs> she says, good morning. I heard Kyle leave. 
And Kefria supplies bitterly, so you came down. Mother, it pains me that you must avoid him. There are things that must be discussed and must be decided. Her mother's smile was tight. And while Kyle is present, that is impossible. Kefria, I am too tired and too grieved to speak tactfully. Your husband leaves no room for discussion. There are no trading words with him, for we do not agree, and he will admit to no reason save his own. I thought that was kind of funny that... This is a common occurrence that when Kyle leaves, Ronica comes down. <laughs> yes, that, that she is avoiding Kyle noticeably, at least noticeably to Kefria. I don't know if Kyle notices at all. Probably not, but Kefria does. Yeah. And she's in a bad mood, so she's kind of playing, playing into that and taking it out on her mother. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of hurt by the words, stung by the words because of that, saying... He is a good man, mother. He only does what he believes is best for all of us. That may be true, but it's little comfort, Kefria. Ronica shook her head to herself. Your father and I certainly believed he was a good man, or we would have never consented to your wedding him. But at that time, we could not have foreseen even half of what has come to pass. You might be better off wedded to a man of trader stock. We all might have been better off have you married someone more familiar with our ways." Oh, snap, Mama Vestra, tell your daughter, like just being a good person and doing things the way you see best doesn't mean anything. That's not a good enough reason to be a trash person. Like, oh, like, yeah, OK, well, that's not very much comfort considering as his I, best for everyone is awful. As I read that, I can see you out of the corner of my eye, just like arm raised like yes <laughs> go off queen <laughs> i don't love ronica but in this moment i love ronica <laughs> but she also ronica before this does admit what has been going through her head to her daughter saying i can grieve for your, I, there's two thoughts these days i can grieve for your father or rebuke myself for the muddle i've made of what he entrusted to me so she can say it out loud like she can talk to kefri and say like i made a mistake right and your husband isn't great. And that's one of the mistakes. <laughs> yep. Also, like, see, practicing the whole, like, people make mistakes. It's okay to admit you made a mistake instead of getting angry and storming out. <laughs> like, ugh, he's the worst. And she continues on saying, look at what we have come to through Kyle's doing what he believes is good for us all. Althea is still missing. Young Wintro is carried off against his will to the ship. And that's not good. Not for the boy nor the ship. Okay, Ronica, you like convinced Wintro or tried to. Right. Also, you want Wintro there, yeah. but go Anyways, <laughs> if Kyle truly understood all that a live ship is, I don't think he'd have the boy aboard a new ship while he's so agitated and unhappy. From all I've heard, the first few months that the ship is quickened are crucial. Calm is what she needs and confidence in her master, not coercion and quarreling. As for his idea of using her as a slaver, it makes me ill. Simply ill. She lifted her head and her gaze pinned Kefria in her place. It shames me that you can allow your son to endure all he must see if he travels aboard a slave ship. How can you allow him to see that, let alone be a part of it? What do you think he must become to survive it? And this is the echo to the first half of the chapter, right? We just experienced through an uncaring person's eyes what it's like on a slave ship. And now we get the question of what must Wintrow become to endure a slave ship? Right. Even if he's not the slave, if he's the person taking care of the slaves on the ship, what does that do to a person? 
And those those words awaken a nameless dread in Kefria. Right. But she's still not convinced, you know. Well, she might be, but she has to verbally say she is not. I think what's really interesting about this is the way Ronica is going about this. Like, obviously what she's saying, I agree with. I think it's great. Like, good on her for speaking the truth. But it's also really hard because I don't think Ronica is taking into consideration the fact that Kefria is being manipulated by her husband that like, obviously she knows that this is happening because she has made comments about it, but the way she is going about pushing Kefria is basically pinning her between a rock and a hard place. There is no like gentleness of like, I understand this is hard for you. Let's work on a way to get you out of here. Right. It's like, look at your faults. You're doing this wrong too. Like you're a bad mother for letting your son go through this. And Ronica maybe, isn't that sneaky. <laughs> no, but like that's kind of the vibes coming off. Yeah. And that's going to put Kefri in a more defensive place instead of a place of wanting to come and be like, you're right, mom. Like, you're telling you're speaking true. I should be listening to you more and getting a yeah. divorce. Like instead it's kind of belittling the fact that Kefria is trying in her way to get Wintro back. Kefria doesn't want this to happen, but she doesn't really have a lot of agency. She isn't given the opportunity and she's been in this relationship for long enough to where she doesn't remember what that feels like anymore. Right. And she doesn't think herself worthy of having those thoughts. Yeah. So Ronica's trying to make Kefria confront that, like using Wintro, using somebody else she loves to confront like what's being done wrong here. But she doesn't know what that feels like to snap out of it. Right. And I think also is just feels more blamey than helpful. Yeah. Like, of course it's bad. Of course she doesn't want her son on that ship. I mean, it could also work, but like it's just way too abrupt. Right. And I mean, it kind of reminds me of what Kyle's doing to Wintro. Like, I'm just going to use tough love. Yeah. Obviously, it's very different because yeah. <laughs> Veronica's tough love isn't coming from like a hateful place no. of like, I hate the being of everything you are right now. But it's it's forcing Kefria to look past her own self-deceptions. It's telling her something that is true that... Ronica knows that Kefra has to lie to herself, right? Mm -hmm. She has to convince herself. And Ke and Ronica doesn't want her daughter to bury those thoughts deep down and is forcing Kefra to confront them, which is a very good thing. But it is like what you said. It's a very black or white decision then. Or she has to keep lying to herself and just say like, no, 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 no. I trust Kyle. Right. And I do want to say, like, I do think this is like, mostly good tough love this is saying the hard stuff but it is i think i think part of the reason why it isn't working is because especially coming off of that conversation with kyle like she is trying to tell kyle that they're bad ideas but she isn't being trusted with that and so you can kind of see ronica's lack of knowledge there i don't know if ronica knows how much kefria is opposing kyle and things Right. So Kefria is defending Kyle saying like, oh, it won't be that bad. He promised me it won't become a stinking death hole of a slave ship or whatever. And Ronica says, even should Kyle treat Wintrow as gently as a girl child, he will suffer from what he sees on a slave ship. The necessary crowding, the deaths, the savage discipline to keep such a cargo under control. 
it's wrong. It's wrong and we both know it. And Kefria replies back, we have a slave in our house, Rach. Devad sent sent you or lent you her while Papa was ill. And Ronica says it's wrong. And then we get the story of Rach and, and what happened with her here. So Ronica says that she tries to send Rach home, or at least to Devad at one point. And Rach falls to her knees, begging her not to, to do that. She'll bring a good price in Chelsea. She knows that, for she has a bit of learning. Her husband was already sent that way for being a debtor. They came from Jamalia. And when they fell into debt and could not find a way out of it, both she and her husband and son were sent to the slave block. Her husband was well-educated, he brought a goodly price, but she and her small son were sold cheaply to one of Devad's agents. And the little boy didn't make the journey over, and she kind of went crazy. I think what's really interesting about this story is that Kefria is using the hardship of one mother to reach another and to show that even with the best of intentions, like she brings up Devad. Like I don't think Devad is an evil person who is trying to put. Yeah, not intentionally cruel. Yeah, it's not intentionally cruel. And yet the death still happened. And she talks about her own death of her children yeah. and how that was hard enough. And how losing her husband just reminded her of how hard that is. And yet she can't even imagine the anguish of being a mother and having your child die before you because they can't have the food. They, they can't keep food down in this situation where you're being forced. She had to watch her little boy die. And she looks up at Kefria and there's torment in her eyes. Like her mother is feeling this. Right. And I think it's really important to get to see this side of of Ronica and how she feels about Rach because it does show us that she's not necessarily as heartless as we thought. Um, it also does explain some of Rach's aversions to Selden and Wintrow and what her whole deal is with Devad. Right. But she had to watch her son die. And Kefria says, well, why didn't she ask for help? As though she forgot that this woman was well, being Kefria doesn't asleep. ask that. Um, Ronica says that she asked Rach that. Oh, right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So Kefri, uh, so she tells Kefria that, you know, like, I can't believe, like, I asked her why she didn't help ask for help, which again is going to show like, it's still a slave ship. Right. Like, even Devad, this quote unquote great man, like, even if he had plans and made sure his ship was like treating these people with kindness, it's still a slave ship. And this is where we get another parallel with the previous section of this chapter. So the baby that was born on ship there already had an X by its nose. It was already marked as a slave. Right. It's just another piece of cargo, right? So this is a mother telling her daughter, two mothers talking to each other about a third mother as a slave losing her child in front of her, but she was not given help. And they can't quite understand that that horribleness, right? But to the pirates or to anybody else, that's just cargo. Right. That's just cargo. They can't understand it. And that's what Ronica is trying to tell Kefria here, that other people were begging for help too. It wasn't just Rach and begging for her son. They were all ignored. Right. And those people walked by her as though they didn't even hear. And... 
Also, when her son did die, they took her son's body from her and threw threw him to the serpents. So not only did she have to suffer this horrible death of her son that wouldn't have happened if she wasn't taken as a slave, but that son doesn't even get a burial. Right. He doesn't even get respect in death. He was fed to a serpent instead. And she went mad. And that's what saved her as well. Because she began to cry out, begging the serpents to break the ship, begging for storms, begging for death on everything there. And when they pulled into Bingtown, she was put off for the sailors vowed that the last storm they endured was of her calling and they'd sail no further with her aboard. And Devad had to take receipt of her because he was her cargo. He was her, or she was his, uh, excuse me, his slave, but he can't call it. So that in Bingtown. So she was his indentured servant. Right. But he couldn't bear her around because she blamed him for her son's death, obviously. So he sends her up to, to uh, the Vestrits as a quote unquote gift. But that, was little more than just greed and a desire to get her out of the house. So you see his gift to us in our time of need had more fear in it than charity. And I mistrust that that is what David himself has become a man governed more by fear than charity. And with a good measure of greed thrown in, I did not think Devad the type of man who could listen to a tale such as Rach's and then continue the trade that had bred it. But he has, and he pushes quite persistently at those he knows well to ask them to vote to legalize his trade for Bingtown as well. Again, her eyes speared Kefria. Now that you have inherited your father's holdings, you inherit his council vote as well. No doubt Devad will begin to court you to use that vote as his bidding. And if your own economic interests align with that of slavery, what do you think Kyle will bid you to do? Kefria felt paralyzed. So it's very, so this is, we get a little bit more of Ronica and her scheming part of it. Yes, she is definitely feeling anguish for rage. She's definitely terrified of what the slave trade could do to Wintrow and to Vivasia and everything like that. But at the heart of it, she's using it as damage control for the vote as well, trying to right. save Bingtown as well. So Kefria, as you said, is paralyzed. She wished to say her husband would not countenance slavery in Bingtown, but already her mind was unwillingly marking up the ledger. Were the slaves legal, certain properties could suddenly become profitable once again, grain fields, the tin mine... But apart from that, Kyle would not have to take his cargo as far as Chelsea to dispose of it profitably, but could sell the slaves right here in Bingtown. Less time in transit meant more of his cargo would arrive alive and in good condition to be sold. With a shudder, Kefria suddenly considered the full import of her thought. More of his cargo would arrive alive. From the beginning, she had accepted that if Kyle chose to transport slaves, it was inevitable that some would die in the process. Of what? Of old age or ill health? No, Kyle was too sage to buy slaves likely to die. She had been expecting them to die from the trip, accepting that it must happen. But why? In her journeys by ship, she had never feared for her own life or health, so only the treatment of the unwilling passengers could be the reason for the deaths. The treatment of the slaves that might well be part of Wintrow's duties as a sailor. 
Would her son learn to ignore the pleading cries of a young woman begging mercy for her child? Would he fling the lifeless bodies to the serpents? So Kefria is finally confronting some of those thoughts that she kind of just buried beneath the niceties and the, the degrees of separation she had from this, right? Right. But her mother's forcing her to confront those, putting Wintro in those shoes. Right, and making it more real in finding that empathy of showing like, well, we, you know, Devad, I never thought he would be a bad person. And yet look at him. It, it bakes him profit. And so he continues. Yeah. And is that what you want to be part of? I think it's really artfully done and it really does shine the light back on how bad slavery is that these are human beings. Right. And like Kefria said, she's never gone on a boat and had to worry that she would die just from the journey. So why was she just accepting that sometimes people die on slave ships, even if they're not mistreated, quote unquote, because you already are viewing them as lesser. And I think that's a really important thing that her mother is doing. And on top of that, she, Ronica has the really good timing of seeing the overwhelmed look in her daughter's face, of seeing this train of thought is really reaching her and then reminding her, it's, knowing her daughter is going to maybe throw this away because it's hard and it would be easier just to give Kyle everything. Right. She says, you know, if you choose to, you can give your vote to Kyle. But once you give Kyle the vote, you never get it back. And he can have anybody he wants use that vote in any way he decides. And this is where it comes into play that her mother puts her between a rock and a hard place, right? This is like the upfront bluntness of what she's shown her because Kefria suddenly felt very cold and alone. And no matter how she decided from this, she would suffer for it. She could not doubt that Kyle would advocate for slavery. She could almost hear his logical, rational arguments, even when he argued that slavery in Bingtown was bound to be a kinder fate for the slaves than slavery in Chelsea. He would persuade her, and when he did, her mother would lose respect for her. It is but one vote on the Traders' Council, she heard herself say faintly. One vote of fifty-six. Fifty-six remaining trader families, her mother conceded. In the next breath, she went on. And do you know how many newcomers have amassed enough lovers of land to claim a vote on the Bingtown Council now? Twenty-seven. You look shocked. Well, so was I. Evidently, there are folks selling to the south, settling to the south of Bingtown, quietly taking up lands with grants signed by the new satrap, and then coming into Bingtown to assert their right to a place on the Bingtown Council. That second council that we created, in a sense of fairness, that the, the three ships' immigrants could have a place to resolve their own grievances among themselves and a voice in governing Bingtown, is now being used against us. And she says the pressure is not just from Bingtown, but also from Chalced. They're pushing down from the north. Satrap doesn't care because they give him gifts. You know, it, it's just everyone's kind of creeping in. They're trying to bring slavery here. That vote matters. So you may be correct in what you were about to say, Kefria. Perhaps one vote will do no good at all to stop the changes that are overtaking Bingtown. In time, not even all 56 traders' votes will be enough to stem the will of this wave of newcomers. And if this new satrap Cosgo will so violate one promise given to us by Asclepius? Asclepius. Will he hold the other one sacred? 
How long before the monopolies granted to us are sold to others as well? I do not like to think of what may happen here. I'll be far more than the end of the way of our life. What such greedy and incautious folks as these may awaken, if they venture up the Rainwild River, I do not like to think. And I think that is a very important thing that she's doing. She's saying, sure, maybe you're right. Maybe one vote doesn't matter. I mean, eventually, it clearly won't. But also, then you're giving up the one vote. It's one more vote that you're chipping away at. And then invoking the Rainwild River and the terrors of what happens with their their agreements, the old traders' lives there. Right. You know, the, the new traders don't know anything about this. And Kefria, her mind is carried back to the birth of her third child, or rather, her third time to be brought to childbed. For no child was born of that long pregnancy and painful labor. Only a creature her mother had neither allowed her to see nor to hold, something that had growled and snarled and thrashed wildly as her mother carried it from the room. Kyle had been at sea. Her father had been at home, and it had been left to him to do what was the burden of Bingtown trader families. No one had spoken of it afterwards. Even when Kyle came home from the sea, he had not asked about the cradle still empty, but only accepted it and treated her with a great tenderness. Once, since then, he had referred to her, quote, stillbirth. She wondered if that was what he truly believed. He was not traitor-born. Perhaps he did not believe in the price that must be paid. Perhaps he did not grasp all that it meant to have married into a traitor family. Perhaps he did not grasp that they protected as well as profited from the Rainwild River and all it brought down with its waters. For a brief instant, she saw her husband as a stranger, as perhaps a threat. Not an evil, malevolent threat, but part of a storm or immense tide that, soulless, still crushes and destroys all in its path. Kyle is a good man, she said to her mother. But her mother had left the room soundlessly, and her own words fell lifeless in the uncaring air. So we see Kefria trying to convince herself out loud, trying to convince her mother, even though I don't think it's actually directed at Ronica. It's more no. like, Kyle's a good man. Like, he, he's not going to do anything about this. But the words that Ronica left with Kefria is, one, slavery, very, very bad. Wintrow's going to be exposed to that awfulness. Two, you're not doing anything about it. Three, your vote is going to go towards slavery because Kyle's going to try to convince you. And four, that all ties together with Kyle not knowing what is happening in his own life, with his own family. He does not know the price that you have paid. He does not know how to run a live ship. He does not know the feelings that everything encapsulates here. He doesn't know the traditions. He doesn't know anything. And that kind of compounds with her previous conversation with him of not knowing what a harvest ball gown would be. Right. I really do wonder about if things would be different if Kyle were home during the third birth. Like, would he understand there is a lot more to things than he had thought before? Or Possibly. Would, he, would he hate Kefria and think of her as cursed? Yeah. It's her fault, her womb that did that? Maybe. But, but also, she, she had Selden after that. Fair. But he didn't know right, yeah. that she had a monster baby. 
Um, which also like thinking about Tymera really yeah, we, makes me sad. Cause like, I thought about that too. While I was reading that because like, that was like actually a baby though. <laughs> that was a baby that would have been okay. Probably. Um, maybe, maybe. because often they have defects and they can't survive long. Well, they don't know that for sure. Cause they all kill them before they can tell for sure. Cause Tymera lived fine and she was way worse than most of the babies that are born. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, but yeah, so I don't know. It's just, it is really hard. It really does highlight how Kyle is the other and Kefri has kind of let him in to ruin the family regardless of his knowledge and his lack of willingness to understand or to learn is doing more harm than good, even if he thinks it's the best solution. Right. Yeah. Ugh. Kyle. Ugh. Well, we have two halves of a chapter. I thought this chapter was amazing. I, this was one of my favorite chapters so far. Hmm. Just how they, the sides mirrored each other. Obviously the emotion it evokes. Right. <laughs> but also... I don't know. It just felt like a large culmination in a lot of the setup for the characters. And it puts a direction on certain things of like where the characters are, are going to go. Right. We have a setup for Kefria who is kind of a background we got in her head once before, but it was right. a little like a small section, but this was a, a lot of thought and a lot of challenging of her preconceived notions and her, her lived lie here. So it's, I don't know. I like this one a lot. That's fair. Um, this one just exhausted me personally. <laughs> That's fair too. I get super mad and then I don't know, you know, Kyle in general <laughs> just makes me mad. Anything that has to do with Kyle. Nope. I, I'm angry. <laughs> well, let us know your uh faults with kyle or your biggest grievances with kyle <laughs> i'm sure the lists are long and let us know any thoughts about uh kenneth the starting of his own kingdom here maybe his his blindness to certain things because it's an interesting topic to explore or any other theories that you might have you can email us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us on any of our in uh our social medias excuse me Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we're on all three of those at Is Fits Happy. And don't forget to recommend us to uh, to your friends that have read this book. We want to get more voices in here, talk to more people about it. So let uh, let everybody know. Thanks so much for tuning in. Yeah. Can't wait to see what we talk about next week. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about things that have been brought to our attention. I think first we'll talk about how we were reminded that Tarman is the first live ship. Yeah. So thank you to Hey Janelle, hey Janelle on Instagram for letting us know. Um, yeah, I forgot that actually. Yeah, because he doesn't have a figurehead. Yes. So. But Kendry is the second, or no, I guess we don't know that for sure. We don't sure. know that we, for sure, yeah. We looked up the wiki, the Hob wiki yeah, one website, of them, yeah. yeah, one of those to see 
if anybody had written, figured it out. And Kendry is labeled in the top as like one of it the was, older ones. But yeah, that, that list wasn't necessarily from top to bottom the oldest. It was like known live ships. And mm. I think it had Kendry is one of the oldest. But I think Kendry is older than Paragon because that was the, the topic of our conversation. Right. Because he was brought in as a steady live ship to try to get Paragon to be... nicer and settled right like he was kind of the veteran one so that's that was kind of my thought on that but yeah thank you uh hey janelle yeah thank you the other thing that we are going to talk about is that we got a really interesting comment on facebook from irene who says that they believe they always pictured the fool at or i guess amber in this iteration as michelangelo because there is a quote from michelangelo at some point where he had said that he isn't someone who likes to carve statues he just is bringing the statue the rock to life he's yeah he's he's revealing what's already there basically and he has a series of statues in in marble that still are that are not fully sculpted they still have like rough marble around them and they are beautiful yeah and that's very similar to what robin Hobbs says of amber's skill i thought that was a really interesting thing to bring up too i hadn't yeah. made i hadn't made that connection i had heard terms like that used before for crafts but never so direct a link to somebody right especially somebody as famous as michelangelo yeah but yeah so thanks irene for bringing that to our attention because i think that's a really fun thing to think about so thank you for everybody who wrote in as always so fun to see the things that you guys shed light on for us and the fun tangents that we can go off of because of the things that you guys bring to our attention (laughs) (laughs) so thank you everybody and i can't wait to see what you guys bring in next week 